Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Welcome Network. Welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Our guest today is Jessica Gross, a writer whose nonfiction has appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, the New York Times Magazine, Long Reads, and the Paris Review Daily, to name just a few. She's received fellowships in fiction from the Yiddish Book Center and the 14th Street Y, and teaches fiction and nonfiction writing at Eugene Lang College at the New School. She joins us today to discuss her debut novel, Hysteria, published this year by Unnamed Press. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to to talk with you about the book. Our podcast, being an analytic podcast, begins with the same question every time. As far as we can know our motivations, what motivated you to write this book? Mm, Yeah, as far as you can know your motivations, that's very good. Um, So I I entered what I didn't know was um, therapy with a a psychoanalyst at the time in my early 20s. I'm now in my mid-30s. And over time, my once-a-week therapy transformed into full-blown psychoanalysis. And I became completely enthralled with the process of lying down on a couch and free associating and together, um, I guess, constructing analyses of, uh, of, of what I was presenting. So I was really passionate about psychoanalysis. I talked to my friends about it all the time. Um, I read, you know, as a layman does, I read... Um, bits of Freud here and there, but really was very invested in the practice of it as I was experiencing it on the couch. And when I, I I wanted to be a a novelist for a long time, but it took me quite a while to get there. And when I was um, kind of figuring out the plot or, or whatever you want to call it of my book, what it was going to explore the central questions, it felt clear to me that it would be about psychoanalysis in some way. But, you know, then a lot happened after that as it transformed into a very specific story. Well, it's interesting. I read um, an interview, I think you did with with Brooklyn Rail, that you knew you wanted Freud as a character. um, And that it's at one point in the process, um, you were trying, people were trying to talk you out of that. What was that about? So I wrote the book, the majority of it in an MFA program at the new school. I had started it a little bit before and in my first semester. So I had come with, with this idea, which again, I I really can't, (laughs) it's hard to say exactly where the specific idea came from, but, um, the initial iteration of the book, uh, had the, the main, the narrator's father dying he was, his family was Viennese. She went to Vienna to investigate her family history there, even though it was set in modern times, Freud just appeared and then other stuff happened. 
Um, so at, in the very first workshop, I got a lot of really helpful suggestions. I got the suggestion that her father should be alive rather than dead so that she could actually interact with him in the real time of the novel. Great. Um, yeah, other suggestions along those lines. But I also got the suggestion that um, why was Freud going to just appear in the narrative? It could easily just be a therapist, just a normal therapist who exists in the, you know, in the same timescape as the narrator, which is, you know, within the past 10 years. Um, And I felt just incredibly stubborn that Freud should appear in the novel, but it was a helpful, it was helpful pushback because it caused me to become detached from the concept of literal Freud just anachronistically appearing in the world of the narrator and to envision a, a kind of looser interpretation of his presence. So maybe he's just appearing. Uh, maybe he's a delusion of the narrator's. Um, and that was really freeing and definitely much more interesting. Um, and I still had to justify his presence, but it became easier when it was more readily tied to the narrator's psyche. And how was the decision to make him a bartender? (laughs) So, um, well, once I realized that the absurd premise of Freud appearing meant that he didn't have to appear in Vienna and could appear in Brooklyn, I started really having fun with it. I I had traveled to Vienna, um, you know, ostensibly as novel research also because my father's family is Viennese and I was curious about it and I just didn't have a very good experience there. So I decided I didn't really want to set the book there anymore. Um, And then I started thinking, okay, so if it's just in Brooklyn, where would be, where, where would this narrator go and where would Freud, where would she happen to encounter Freud? Um, I remember one of my professors kind of uh, provided whatever prick to my imagination was needed to get me thinking along these lines. She said, where did he come from? Is he just, is he delivering some Chinese food she ordered? Where, where does she see Freud? And then I thought, okay, not that, but what? And, you know, I'm sure unconsciously I was thinking, okay, about the trope of a a therapist bartender, but it, it, it bizarrely wasn't, um, yeah, it wasn't so conscious as me trying, yeah, trying consciously to create some kind of parody of that, although in a way it kind of is. Well, actually, I'm glad that you said that because um, one of the things that I read this summer, because what else are we going to do but read while we're all locked inside, <laughs> was um, uh, uh, something that Julian Barnes had said about um, biographers. He's hello. Um, he, you know, he's he's not uh, he's not fond of biographers, and he's talking about a biography of Flaubert, and he said that the the author seared the novelist with a terrifying theoretical grid, like an imperious chef branding false scorch marks onto a steak after it's been cooked. Wow. I, I really love that because your novel has, I mean, I have my own theoretical grid, but I'm, I'm looking forward to, it, to finding out what was conscious. Like, oh yeah, I read about this and, and which just came out of the story. Um, 
you know, of all the, the Freuds that are, you know, the, the, you've, you've done your, your homework. There's the throwaway line about the sister's piano and, um, not throw away, but it's just tossed in. You're like, oh, wow, she's done her homework. Mm-hmm. How did you decide on early Freud? Hmm. How did I decide on early Freud? I'm not exactly sure. I think that that might have been one of the unconscious elements of mm-hmm. it. You know, I I kind of read around, but it, it was in, in the way of a novelist, not of an academic, sort of reading a couple of biographies, taking notes on what was, I don't know, what came alive to me and what I wanted to attribute to this narrator. And yeah, I don't know if I was, if I really had a dichotomy in my head of early Freud, late Freud, so much as I just wrote in what made this character, this projection, whatever you want to call it, come Mm -hmm. alive for me as a writer. And yeah, maybe... I don't know, maybe the vivacity or impetuousness of younger Freud was appealing to me in a way. That's a great question. Well, she, she, she gets her, she gets her wish, right? Put your hands on me. I mean, it's just <laughs> terrific. Cause like yes. that, 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 that holds up. And you know, it's interesting. He says in, in um, a footnote that uh, he says, anyone interested in the development um, of catharsis into psychoanalysis um, should start with studies on hysteria mm-hmm. and then follow the path uh, he says which I myself have trodden um, hysteria it's the it's the the title and again chicken egg did you write the book and go oh this is about hysteria as I understand it is it how did that come about the title came way late into the game which is interesting and I was actually sort of ambivalent about choosing it as the title because I was being very literal and I thought okay, she doesn't technically express hysteria as it was expressed in, you know, Dora or something like that, where her, there was like a very distinct uh, somatic symptom that could be traced to a psychic cause. Um, So my agent and I, when we were about to send the book out, each came up with a long list of names. And this was the one that happened to be on both of our names um, or both of our lists and I just, I, I kind of, I had this resistance and frankly, I went into my analytic session and I talked about it and she said, okay, you're being too, you're being too literal now. It's a great, it's a great title. So just, um, it's enough. <laughs> and, uh, that was sort of helpful. So, so yeah, the title was appended later on and I feel like it, it deals with his, you know, some aspects of hysteria as he was writing about in that case, which, which, you know, my novel doesn't map onto that case, but it was very inspiring in writing it. Um, I think it's a fascinating case. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't kind of take the definition of hysteria as he was using it there. So literally, but if you think about it in a kind of broader and more colloquial sense, I felt like it, it fit well. Well, And, and in reading it, I'm like, well, of course it's called hysteria. Like now, I mean, as, as many things are, I, I couldn't think of another another name for it. It's perfect. (laughs) So the, what's also uh, fun for me with this is, um, the publication date, the official pub date is August 18th. Yes. 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 Okay. So on this program on August 17th, we had, uh, uh, Daniel Nafo on, and she was talking about a, a book, uh, the new sexual landscape and contemporary psychoanalysis. 
And one of the things she talks about is, is she and, and others, colleagues in the literature have noticed over the past, say, 20, 30 years, that sexuality, sex, has really dropped out of the analytic literature. Um, mm. It's just not there. It's really sort of, uh, it's now become conspicuous in its absence. Um, so that's on, that, that's on this podcast on August 17th. On August 18th, your book comes out. <laughs> and I'm like, well, here's the corrective. And the um, there's two sentences here that I think are the most psychoanalytic sentences that I have read in a long time. And they are this. So you're, you're narrator. I imagined pouring all the men I'd ever fucked down the drain of a sink, then flipping a switch to shred them all to pieces, the grating hum of them being ground to a pulp and then sucked away. I mean, it's sex and aggression. Mm -hmm. Um, And it feels, well, as a reader, as an analyst reading it, I'm like, oh, this is, you know, this is square one for the book. But tell me about that exchange and, 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 and can we talk about the narrator, you know, from there and then, and then go out? Mm, that is, that's great. I have to listen to that episode. Um, and, you know, I haven't read that much contemporary psychoanalytic writing. And so that is really interesting to me. And I'd love to hear more about, yeah, why and how sex has dropped out of the discourse in that way. Tell us about your, your, your narrator, um, besides uh, possibly hallucinating Freud, tell us about her. So, um, yeah, I, I have to read that. Um, I have to listen to that episode that you mentioned. I'm really, that's fascinating to me. I, I hadn't realized that sex had dropped out of the discourse. So obviously, and I want to hear and learn more about that. But yes, my narrator is, um, I guess she's been referred to as, quote, hypersexual, which is an interesting descriptor, not one that I used. But I I, how would I describe it? She acts out sexually, I suppose. The book opens on her having just had sex one week before with a friend of her father's. The night before, she slept with her roommate's boyfriend, or sorry, her roommate's brother. Um, And so she has all of this, like, compulsive, uh, these compulsive thoughts, um, she deals a lot with self laceration, with shame, and kind of acts out in uh, with, with men in this way. Acts out her aggression, acts out her frustrated desires. But there's a lot of um, kind of edible background to her her almost yeah rageful associations with men. Um, she has a very frustrated relationship with her father. Who, who himself is has some kind of repression going on that um, we don't we can't understand because he's a different person. Um, so, in terms of the way that she acts out with men, uh, she seems to want badly to be seen and loved, but cannot give this to herself at all and anyone she ever sleeps with, she needs to dispose of almost immediately. She um, connects with men in a kind of, uh, like, yeah, she's kind of in a consumptive way, I guess I would say, rather than an actual 
any kind of acknowledgement of them as a, a human being. There's a very, there's a lot of objectification to her interactions with men. Um, and as soon as she's exposed herself and her vulnerability, um, she wants to dispose of them, make it go away. That's kind of how I would, how I would, um, summarize it, although I'm having a harder time than I anticipated. But I'm curious if that rings true to you as a reader or to hear more about like your your analyst reaction to those lines that you read, which were amazing to kind of hear read back, which has not happened to me before. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, as an analyst, I was like, I mean, they're just, they, it's, um, it's that experience as a, as a reader, when you read a sentence or two sentences that just floor you, that you just stop, you put the book down, you walk around and you're like, oh my God, yes, 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 yes. And what's interesting when you say my, my reaction as an analyst, um, you know, I think somewhere again, either in, in the blurbs or reading about the book, um, people say, oh, this, you know, strange and wonderful, weird novel or this strange, wonderful. And I guess as an analyst, there's nothing weird mm-hmm. about any of this. I'm like, yeah, I know this. I know this person. I know this narrator, I know the dad, I know the roommate, I know, you know, it's so hyper familiar um, as an analyst. And, and actually what's interesting with that is one of the things that um, people who have never had an analysis or um, yeah, who, who are thinking about it, you know, Freud, Freud said many things, but one of the things that he said, which in my training was really sort of central, and he says, so it goes on in innumerable, uh, innumerable variations, and one can only reply that to say everything really does mean say everything. Mm. And so for me, your narrator is a gift for anyone who's wondering what, oh, am I, am I too much? What can I say? Mm. Because I'm like, this is, this is somebody. And in fact, you as the author have in a sense said everything about this. So I think it's a real, a real gift. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. I, it means a lot to me and it's really what I hoped as I was writing the book. I loved what you said at the beginning of that question that it's there, I guess to call it strange is to kind of, um, yeah, uh, is, is a kind of defense against um, acknowledging the fullness of one's humanity. This, to mm-hmm. me, I know so many people who have had all of these thoughts and feelings. I've had these thoughts and feelings maybe channeled differently than this particular narrator. But um, yeah, I know a lot of people who've dealt with the, the, the extremity of the mental landscape that she's dealing with. And it was really, really important to me to give her space in the form of this novel to kind of speak at length, basically. And by her, I mean, I suppose me, but really anyone. I, I guess, to be honest, the ideal reader that I was imagining was like me uh, in my very early 20s when I was struggling before I had found analysis, but really needed it unbeknownst to me. Um, so that's kind of who I really hope finds the book is someone who thinks that this, these kind of, this mental landscape is, is strange or abhorrent or whatever. 
um, and to, to kind of see it reflected back to them and that there's, there's space for it. That's really important to me. Very, very important. There is space for it. And I'm going to, I want to come back to that because there's something at the end I want to talk about, but you, you asked me if I thought that your description of her, you know, consuming men. And so (laughs) when I, when I looked over my, to steal Julian Barnes, my terrifying theoretical grid, I'm like, okay, here, here, you know, here's the theories. Um, in the psychosexual three essays, oral. Okay. Um, obviously Oedipal, um, you could find penis envy, certainly masochism, the repetition compulsion. Mm-hmm. And then what you just said, um, to, to give a, give her space to breathe. One of my favorite conceptions is, is that the unconscious doesn't know time. There is no time in the unconscious. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's funny. You're published by unnamed press. She's unnamed. <laughs> um, her parents, I don't think are named. Everybody else gets a name, mm-hmm. but she and her parents don't get named. But, you know, I read it and I went, okay, wait a minute. In, in reality, this takes place over, you know, a weekend, but right. it is so expansive. I mean, it goes back and forth in time, just, you know, the week before with Langham and, and then the, the memory and, and could be a screen memory. It's so expansive. It feels like the the full you know thirty years, um, as opposed to as opposed to two days. It's really really expansive. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the person that gets a name is her roommate Jojo, and this um, there's such a there's what she makes up in her head. Then there's the actual you know meeting with Jojo on the stairs if she comes home, and I'm like, oh well, this is about a projection. She's decided everything Jojo thinks. How did, how did Jojo come about? Well, this was one thing that um, changed over the course of drafting the novel in an MFA program, which, you know, unlike any other novel I'll ever, ever write, I got tremendous quantities of feedback throughout writing this manuscript. So I initially had, um, had the narrator have two roommates. There was Jojo and then there was Layla. And I got the suggestion early on to uh, just smush them into one character. Um, and I thought, okay, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> sort of early on in writing. And the suggestion came from um, I, the, the motivation behind it was that there was kind of Jojo was more was like the angel and Layla was more of the devil. And it, it felt like very crude the way I had sort of divvied up their um, roles in the narrator's life. And so why not create one actual complicated character out of these, these two people? And it would be much easier to deal with narratively. But I think that's interesting because so much of this narrator's experience is about triads and comes back to the original Oedipal Triangle and feeling um, left out of her parents' dynamic, feeling rebuffed by her father um, and so I do think it's really interesting that I started with her, with that triangle, uh, yeah, just mapping onto her relationships with her roommates also. Um, but as for the other details of Jojo and who she was, the fact that the narrator had slept with her brother was really early on. I sort of wanted to set her up with a lot of, um, uh, behavior that she would have to deal with later on or analyze 
Um, and so that came really early on. And then the interactions between the two of them sort of just flowered from there in a way that I can't totally trace. She just kind of took on life as I was writing her. And she appeared immediately with the name Jojo. It wasn't, hmm. it wasn't like a, uh, what should I name her? I don't know how that happens, but she just plopped into my mind with that name and looking like she did. Although I, I made an effort. It's, it's, I really don't like very intense physical descriptions of characters when I'm reading because it interrupts my imagination. So I give, I gave details here and there about what, what everyone, including Jojo looked like, but not, not a lot. No, not a lot. And in fact, it's interesting um, because for me, Jojo is defined by the narrator's action very early on on the couch, the detail of either doing or wanting to slide her feet under her roommate's legs. I mean, it's the whole thing expands from there. It's just that 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 type of detail. You're like, boom, I know a lot about them from from that. Mm. Um, I want to talk about um, things that are symbolic, but maybe um, I want to say narcissistically symbolic for <laughs> because it's set in New York. And, you know, New York, whenever a novel is set in a specific place, the, that place becomes a third character. So or a fourth character, the um, so she, you know, at her bar, she orders a dark and stormy, which is like the most perfect, you know, <laughs> cocktail. I'm like, okay, well, that's great. Um, I do want to know where in Brooklyn you can get a cocktail for $7 because I don't know <laughs> about that. Um, but there's reading it as, as someone who, who lives in New York, the crossing um, of the park on, on M86, that going from the west side to the east side, they are so... I mean, it's almost like a hero's journey. <laughs> um, and I, in fact, I know I know someone in New York who was raised on the east side, where she was raised, and as an adult, will not go there. She won't go to the Met. She just can't. She's now west side. It's such a huge... The park separates these two worlds. Um, I think it's hard to understand if you don't, don't live here. Um, yeah. Is that consciously in your mind? Okay, this bus ride is a very specific bus ride that you can take. Yes, it is. I was an Upper West Sider for a long time um, and have a lot of allegiance to the Upper West Side. I think that that story you told is so interesting because, um, yeah, it's a, there's, they're not actually that different in reality. I mean, probably socioeconomically, they're pretty similar. They look not that different to an outsider, but there is, I feel like the minute differences matter a lot to somebody who considers themselves a New Yorker. But mm -hmm. I think for the person that you described, as well as for my narrator, um, the kind of New Yorker-esque differences and allegiances of those two sides of the city are totally conflated with her um, feelings about her family. The, the Upper East Side is where she grew up. It's where her family lives. And that was very complicated for her, she has not resolved her feelings about her childhood. And so it is fraught to go back to the Upper East Side, even apart from, you know, the sort of hoity-toity uh, associations of that neighborhood, if you want to call it a neighborhood. Right. And then in, in, the, in the central memory is the reverse commute in a way which is they have to, to get to Met Opera, hmm. you have to go 
east to west. That's right. That's so great. Yeah. Um, so I want to, uh, so the, um, so we have a, a, a psychoanalytic novel. We know that, that Freud loved uh, creative writers. Um, he called them valuable allies. Um, he actually says at one point, um, he says, it strikes me myself as strange that the case histories I write should read like short stories. Mm. Um, and then uh, in an interesting uh, overlap, I got your book and I got the new um, Ferrante mm. and I start reading them the same night. And then all of a sudden, wait a minute, I'm, I'm mixing up my daughters and fathers. So I had to put her down. <laughs> Um, and then in the, um, in, in the interview you did uh, with Brooklyn Rail, uh, David Gerard says that your work is reminiscent of Philip Roth and Ferrante. So I went back to Ferrante because she loves Freud. She's read Freud. She really gets him. But she says something that I think addresses. So if your narrator is read by the 20 something who needs to understand you're, you're free to be this. There's no such thing as too much. This is great. Other concerns that people have. And I think Ferrante, she says, um, I've never been in analysis, but it is rare that one saves oneself from a rickety landing at the top of a building by throwing oneself down the stairwell. (laughs) So that's a, a common fear as someone who's written about it, read it, experienced it. What would you say to the person that says, why, 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 why would you do this? I mean, it is interesting. I think that uh, earlier in my time in analysis, I was such a devotee that I would just want everybody to do analysis. I thought it was the best thing in the world. Okay. And so I would have had a different answer than the one I have today, which is that it has been one of the most fascinating and worthwhile experiences of my life. However, not everyone is me. And so when I went into analysis, I had a good amount of pain and I really, really needed somebody to listen and to help me deconstruct what was going on. Um, So I think that the motivation of that amount of pain was incredibly helpful in getting me over the discomfort of what it means to, yeah, pick apart your psyche thread by thread. Um, It isn't entirely, it's a fascinating process. It can be exhilarating, but there are difficult elements to seeing yourself more and more clearly. So I guess that now I would say, it did not feel like throwing myself off a building, but there (laughs) there is certainly discomfort involved in that kind of um, self-reflection, self-analysis or, you know, analysis reflected back to you by another person, there is discomfort. And so I do think that, I do think that the motivation has to be there and that people who really aren't into it can't be subjected to it. Um, I don't know. I'm curious how you would feel as, as an analyst, how, like, yeah, what's your answer to your own question? If I can do that. Um, yeah, sure. Um, that that is not what happens. That you don't throw oneself down a stairwell, um, and um, that in fact that 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 terror is 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 pretty common. 
Um, but um, that, that, that's not what happens in analysis. You don't throw, throw yourself down, down the mm-hmm. stairwell. Yeah. Nor nor does your analyst throw you down. I think that that's mm. you know the other thing, which is oh this person is going to do X to me, mm-hmm. um, and and so I'll I'll tie it in. I keep thinking I'm going to be chronological here, but that's just not going to happen. Um, the other <laughs> wait, reference- can I just interrupt because this gave me a, this this uh, furnished me with a memory that of, of my own analysis, which I want to share, which is that I remembered when I. Um, there, there were various things that I think that my analyst knew for quite some time or had detected were probably true about me. I struggled with an eating disorder for a really long time, unbeknownst to me. But it was quite a ways into the analysis until she really even broached the possibility that this could be the case, maybe a couple of years into it, kind of waiting for me to be at a point where I was ready to um, deal with it, I think. Um, and I do remember when I increased from two to three days a week, uh, and was about, I was very afraid of lying down on the couch as opposed to sitting up on the couch and looking at my analyst, lying down and having her sit behind me, which is kind of akin to this fear that, that you, that you quoted of throwing oneself off the building. I was just scared that, that all of the stuff would just horrible things would just pop out of my mouth. And we did a lot of talking about just just the fact of lying down on the couch before before it happened. So there's always room for, I mean, it's a very slow process is the thing. So there's always room for even processing the process. There is no, there's no, um, there's no force feeding. It's not, it's not like that. It goes at the pace of the person who's in the therapy. So yeah. I, I echo I echo your point. Even so, I think there's there's elements of it which might not, you know, yeah. Which if you're if you're relatively fine, if you choose not to do it, twenty two year old me isn't going to spite you. <laughs> the, the the idea of that it unfolds in a slow process is also um, for Ante, who I just you know she says, listen, the problem is is that real change takes a long time while life hits us right away now with all of its contradictions. Mm, so mm-hmm. she really sort of understands um, how tangled it is. Yes. Um, but the other person that was reminiscent of is, is Philip Roth. And um, I don't want to give it away because I won't be able to read the book. But I'm reading the book, and I don't necessarily have Portnoy's complaint in mind until I'm you know, at that point of a book where you're like, oh, I can see that I have one page left. And I'm like, how is she, how is she going to end this? I had no, I don't know. You know, it's like a picture. How are you getting out of this inning? I did not know. Um, And it, it was brilliant. It's, it's a brilliant last line. Um, It has a repetition compulsion in it, but it also does what we mentioned earlier, which is, there, the space is created for the rest of the story to be told. I'm being very coy here, mm-hmm. but it's just, um, it's good. Did you have um, Portnoy's complaint in mind or, or Roth at all? Yes. Yes, I absolutely did. I read Portnoy's complaint now. It's about 10 years ago and it was, uh, it influenced me a lot, um, but I was careful not to 
reread it right as I was writing because I wanted it to be sort of embedded in my being in a way that wouldn't be, that I wouldn't just recapitulate any elements of it. However, the famous ending of Portnoy's Complaint is so memorable. It was impossible to forget and was definitely inspiring to me. I will be coy also. I don't, I don't want to really give it away. But it was important to me that the ending of the book be the beginning of something for yep. the narrator. Yeah. Well, you did it. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's, uh, I'm going to go back to this idea of, of, you know, you my idea of, of, of Central Park and what that means. Um, I had what I think is probably an even more New York narcissistic reading of it, but I'll ask you about it anyway, <laughs> um, which is, so your narrator um, has a memory. And um, so I, I stopped short. Now, my problem that I bring to it is that I adore the Met. Mm-hmm. I love Met opera. Love it, love it, love it. And so I read, um, you know, she has the memory of the expansive summer night. And I went, wait a minute, the Met's dark in the summer. It, it goes dark at the end of May. <laughs> Not that it can't be warm in May, but mm-hmm. oh wait, this 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 has to be a fantasy. Couldn't be summer. Then I'm <laughs> then I'm like this. You know, her 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 parents are um, East Side. Um, you know, certain amount of uh, solvency, and I'm like, why are they in the balcony and not the grand tier? I'm like, oh, <laughs> this can't be a memory. But then I'm like, wait a minute. She she leaves the auditorium. And then she comes back in and I'm like, nope, unless you're in the parterre box, they will not let you back in. <laughs> and then, and then she says, um, she says, uh, in my memory, a little girl stood still a stunned certainty that the little girl had never existed. I have the strange feeling I imagined her. So that's, those are, you know, that's what, what you're writing. I'm like, oh, okay. This is a, a screen memory. She's mashing things up. Am I just reading it too closely because I love the Met? You know what? I, so I actually prefer your reading to my intent. So let's just go with that. I mean, frankly, I, I've i been to hear the Philharmonic many times, but I've only been to the Met Opera a couple of times. So uh, I, did, I did see Verter at the Met Opera as I was researching this book. And I was lucky enough to have taken a knife skills class with somebody who worked at at the Met Opera who hooked me up with a backstage tour. I got to look at the old 90s program of Verter, which would have been what my narrator probably saw. But uh, I'm not, I was not thinking very carefully about all of the factual dissonances <laughs> as that you mentioned. And I did picture her having a literal memory, whether or not that memory has been, has, you know, morphed over time. Um, I'm sure it has, but I did picture this originating from some actual event, but I, I think I prefer the reading that it is entirely a fantasy and that it didn't. I think that's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's, let's talk about the opera you picked though. Of all the opera, Verter is not one of, not listed as one of Freud's favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Don Carlo was his favorite, but he liked a lot of the Mozarts. How did you pick it? Um, I picked it, you know, I, I felt like the narrator's, um, 
inner life was so, her emotions are so intense. And, you know, I'm not an opera expert, but um, I did know that the, I don't know, I, I mean, I guess it would, you'd be hard pressed to find an opera that has like a muted emotional valence, but um, <laughs> I just, something about the story of Voltaire felt like it, it could hold, um, I don't know, that the narrator could map herself onto it particularly easily because there's such frustrated um, but intense yearning desire, um, thwarted desire, uh, which is her, her history. Um, so yeah, that's how I picked it. Well, it's great because it leads into another sort of, uh, arresting moment, um, as a, as a reader. Um, so from the analytic point of view, the idea of induced feelings, um, and I think the, the chapter before, you know, she's, she's gone home. The narrator has gone to have a, um, uh, a conversation with her parents and her, her father, who's not a Freudian, her parents are uh, CBT therapists. And her mm-hmm. dad says to her, you know, she's, she says she's getting nervous or she says, you're making me nervous. And he says, well, we aren't making you nervous. My father <laughs> said, feelings aren't made by external circumstance. They're made by your own internal commands. And then luckily mom steps in and goes, would you stop? Um, <laughs> but then she's, uh, back at school um, and she's teaching darkness visible and a fellow teacher says to her, aren't you worried that it'll be contagious? Do you seriously want blood on your hands? She says, that's absurd. I told him it doesn't work that way. You can't induce despair by writing about it. No one ever committed suicide because of a book. And of course people did when Verter was published men dressed up in blue coats and yellow vests and killed themselves. Oh my God. I actually did not know that. You didn't know that it's called the Verter effect. Oh my God. That's incredible. That's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I was like, Oh wait, Oh wait, that's so brilliant. Um, Wow. I, well, that was unintentional. So thanks for attributing it to me. (laughs) I do. (laughs) But, but here's the thing. It makes, this is why this, that your your narrator, this person, is so just real three dimensional, recognizable. Um, yeah, it's just it's great. So that moment really, really stayed with me. Wow, that's incredible. Sorry to disappoint, but I'm I'm totally enthralled by that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, gosh, what else? Um, what are you working on now? Well, I am working on another project, uh, which I hope will develop into a novel, but it is at such an early stage that I don't feel I can summarize it in any, in any way. It is an amorph- more amorphous blob that will hopefully become a book at some point. Good, 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 good. Yeah. Um, well, listen, uh, as I said throughout the interview, I really wanted to talk to you. Um, you've written a psychoanalytic novel. You've brought back sex. Um, but I think that it is, I think it is uh, a book for um, 
clinicians to read and go, yes, this is this character type. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. Uh, and for, for people that want to sort of understand, um, like you said, what is, what is humanity? You're, you're not too much. You just are. So it's yeah. really terrific. And I'm so glad uh, that you joined me today. Thank you so, so much for having me and bringing your insights to my work. It's really thrilling to me. Good, 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 good. All right. This is um, New Books and Psychoanalysis. We've been speaking with Jessica Gross about her novel um, published just a month ago, um, Hysteria.